Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. So good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. With us today is Daryl Elliott Green. Daryl was a constable on a routine job when he was ambushed and shot twice in the face and shoulder. And despite critical injuries, he drew his firearm and began searching for the gunman. For his actions that night, Daryl received the Queensland Police Service highest accolade for bravery, the Valor Award, and the Group Bravery Citation from the Governor General of Australia, Sir Peter Cosgrove. He was also featured on Australian Story. But Daryl's real story was only just beginning. And Daryl, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Hamish. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So with that statement in your bio here, it says your real story was just beginning. And that seems like a really good place to begin. I received very little training regards PTSD or anything like that at the academy. And so I wasn't uh, mentally uh, prepared for what was going to happen. And initially I was stunned and dazed by being shot. But seven weeks after we were shot, an officer attended a domestic violence incident, Norm Watt of the Rockhampton Dog Squad. He was shot once, the bullet severed his femoral artery, and if the blood flow is not stopped within four minutes, you bleed out. Myself, my partner and sergeant were all shot multiple times. We live, he's shot once and dies, and that led to me to suffer survivor guilt. Then my subconscious started to question my own mortality and literally I was hit with the full fury of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anger, anxiety, hyperarousal. Right. So what what happened when it, like the onslaught of it, what, what happened to you? I initially thought I was going crazy. That was my very first thought. I, just so surreal but then I remembered an officer who was involved in a shooting before me that a vehicle he was involved in a pursuit it's gone off a, a gravel path he's gone down the gravel path on his police motorcycle this vehicle's done a u-turn it's coming at him before he had time to get out the way he's just drawing his firearm shot at the tire was able to shoot the tire out it's gone off to the side of the road he arrested the offender, but there was a long internal investigation about his actions and you know, everything was clear, but it was very uh, intense for him. And he started having some dreams and anger and flashbacks. And so he sought help for his mental health and he confided that in me. And that was a trigger saying that I should not only just, it's one thing to turn up to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It's another thing to really let them know what's going on. Yes, because there's a confidence there, and and if you're dealing with something like what you were beginning to deal with, it, it can make you very vulnerable in a place where you might not want to be. You're exactly right, and so the first thing that that they were able to do, the, the two specialists that I initially saw, was build trust, hmm. and until that was 
built, I was a bit of a closed book. And you would be with the thoughts that you've developed with your conscious thinking of, oh, I'm going crazy and the space that you were in, it'd be very hard to open up to people. Will they look at me as being crazy? Am I crazy? So that trust is a, a huge thing. Exactly. And there was nobody, even with, um, with the other officers, we were very guarded amongst ourselves about speaking about it because it was just so, so surreal. It's, it's not like that, uh, like you're, an, you're an ex-Olympian and you can talk to other ex-Olympians what it's like being a, you know, a former Olympian and in that transition period. There was nobody to really go to and say, oh, you know, it was has somebody shot you at close range and have you come out the other side and can you tell me what you were going through and then they can say, oh, well, that's what I'm going through. So it's a normal reaction to an abnormal event. I thought that I was going bonkers. And, and you just, and you stated something very important. I don't know if you realize it. You had a very normal reaction to an abnormal event and this is one of the things that we've been learning about PTSD. Like some people are saying, well, oh, I'm mentally uh, defective or I've been mentally injured or uh, all this stuff. And it's like, no, no, no. What's happening to you is completely normal. It may seem like you're going nuts. It may seem like you're off the scale. What, what you said is really important about the normal reaction to an abnormal event. And a lot of people don't realize that. What I'm curious about is when you were working with these psychiatrists, what did they do to build the trust? Well, if I can just go back to that question about a normal reaction to an abnormal event, I just want to touch on sure. that it wasn't just one person telling me. It, I had to receive the message multiple times. So there was the officer who was shot. Then there was the Vietnam veteran I spoke to. But a critical point was I was having a break with the maxiofacial reconstruction of my mouth, which was very intrusive. I flew to England to see my brother. He's married over there, and his wife, Louisa, bought me a book, and it was by the BBC, and it was called Shell Shock, and it was on the history of post-traumatic stress. And there's a small piece in that that talks about our first recordings of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's the Greek poets recording their soldiers at night, tossing and turning, dreaming, waking up, screaming out, suffering basically PTSD from the battles they were involved in. So I was very fortunate to have it come in a number of, from a number of sources to say, okay, I'm not crazy. That was a powerful piece. Yes, to answer, it would be. To answer your question, how they built trust, uh, the psychiatrist I spoke to, he talked about other people he had uh, counselled. Some of those were people who were involved in the Balkans wars. Some horrific stories of people who saw their families executed in front of them. He was an older gentleman, so he was very experienced, and I knew somebody who went to him. So there was a, a couple of things that went in, in his his favour, his age, his, his ex experience, and the people he could tell me about that he spoke to, their reactions, and he got to know about me as a person and my personality. And so it was like any relationship, it 
grew over time. But I think it was the stories about the people he'd counselled that was super helpful. The police psychologist had a very powerful story himself. He was a Vietnam veteran. In 1965, he was deployed to Vietnam. He was in his fifth month of his tour. He was a point man on patrol. He's walking through the bush and his rifle pushes up against a thin string in front of him, which he never saw. It was attached to a live grenade in a can, which is uh, once the rifle's pushed against the string, it dropped out. His step part is exploded, showering his uh, lower right leg and his torso with shrapnel. Many backed out, then eventually flew into an Australian Army hospital in Malaysia. Then he spoke about his journey afterwards, and he came back to Australia, had three years in various training areas, but he had enough, and he burned all his uh, uniforms, destroyed all his photographs and all his military documentations. He just wanted to leave the horror of the Vietnam War behind him. The only thing he couldn't was his mental health issues. And he, and he said to me, and I remember his words, they were so powerful. He said, mate, I've been there. I've had the gun in my mouth, finger on the trigger, trigger ready to pull it. It doesn't have to end like that. That him being vulnerable and telling me about his story and he sought help and then eventually wanted to help others become a psychologist who was employed by the police that gave him an, a an immediate way to build very strong trust yes makes total sense so stories and stories not just stories but stories from people you, you knew or knew of people that you trusted people who had been there before you and being able to speak to you in such a way that that it would c connect with you. Precisely. I got very lucky with the professionals I have seen, but I did some research before I did that. And when other people have come and asked me for a little bit of advice, I, I said, mental health professionals are, are like carpenters you know there's good carpenters and there's bad carpenters and so take your time if it doesn't feel right find someone that it does feel right and it can make the world a difference i i would agree uh for what it's worth uh, just a quick aside let uh, on my own journey going through uh, ptsd and getting help there was one guy i was referred to it wasn't just an immediate thing where i could trust him i tested him many many times and the tests were along the lines of, will you walk with me through my pain or will you run away? And over time, when I tested him multiple times, I discovered he was not going to run away. He stayed with me no matter what. And that's what made the difference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And because it's not easy to counsel or help somebody suffering PTSD. It's hard work. Darrell, the... The incident where you were shot was in 2000 and went through it, uh, you went through over 10 years right. suffering the, the depression and PTSD and also the multiple uh, surgical procedures that went, um, went with it. So uh, that suffering the depression and PTSD over 10 years, when did it actually go away for you? Has it gone away? Tell us, it, was there a defining moment where, and do you look back on it now at PTSD and how is it? It is something that will be with me for the rest of my life. And so 
there's, there's small things that I do to uh, you know, modify, modify my behaviour so I, I don't get triggered. So sure. I don't watch, watch a lot of uh, television news because it's, you know, pressing and sad. So there's, there's small little things uh, like that. I still have a lot of emotions and I uh, normally run them out. So it's finding healthy ways to deal with it. But the Vietnam veteran who is a police psychologist, uh, he, I'm still in contact with him and it was so powerful. He's retired now and he says, you know, with the passing of time, it gets easier and easier. He says, for him, he'll still be out. He'll be with his family bushwalking and all of a sudden he'll have thought, oh, yeah, get off the path, get off the path. But then he's able to wake up and say, hey, no, no, I'm not in Vietnam. That, and that was just part of my experience. So that was helpful. For me, what was extremely helpful hey i had to get the surgeries out of the way i had to get criminal compensation out of the way and so those were all constant reminders things coming back in into my face and that would flare up uh, not only the emotions when i was told you know denied criminal compensation or in you know, a setback with the reconstruction of, of my mouth once those got dealt with i got to the point where well, what I would do is something had occurred, and a classic would be I'd be out running, be out running, and then a car would drive by, and there'd be something on the road. It would be a pizza box or it would be an a, a yep. empty can. The yep. car would run over it, it'd go pop, and I'd jump out of my skin, have hyperarousal reaction to it. And I'd have to, you know, breathe deep and calm down and, and uh, gather myself. And then I got really angry with myself, and I thought, how was the old Daryl Green going to react? What would he have done? And I did that for years. And by about 2010, the criminal compensation finally got sorted. It was just a passage of time that I was able to realise that I'm a new Daryl Green and that's just my reaction. And it was really – so I still have that, that was reactions to a, a door banging. But I know, oh, that's, you know, I'm reacting like that because of that experience I had in 2000. And so I'm very quickly able to uh, recover and go on and put it aside and not be angry with myself and, and just to accept that this is a part of my life. And hmm. and this is the resilience and the res resources that you've developed and continue to develop. Yes. my uh, I was awarded a speaking scholarship from Professional Speakers Australia in 2000 and. 15 and my mentor uh, one of the things that he continues continues to encourage me is to write uh, more and more so i've still have a lot of family responsibilities um with my uh, elderly father and my 89 year old uh, uncle and uh, like building any uh business it's um you know step by step but that's something i really enjoy getting my ideas down on paper and sharing with with people well, you say enjoy it, does it, and how does that actually help? So actually putting the stuff out, how does that help? When somebody has come back to uh, me and said, hey, thanks for that great piece of advice because I actually went and spoke to a friend who I was too afraid to actually say anything to because they'd been through this traumatic incident. And one of the things I say, if you don't know what to say, tell the person. You've just been through this. I really don't know what to say to you, but I just want you to know that I'm here you know, to help and any way I can and, and do uh, 
and be there for them. So that just that simple technique rather than shying away from the 800-pound grill in the room. One example is an officer, him and his uh, wife, had a miscarriage. And then whenever the conversation turned to children, everybody in the office would turn away from it. And uh, he came up after a, a talk and, and thanked me for sharing that message because it's just uh, a very common thing in the world that people don't know what to say. They say nothing. comes to 800-pound gorilla in the room. And that was a shooting for me for many years because people didn't know what to say. And, mm. and I turned that around when I got asked to speak to recruits at the academy. And people said, oh, you actually speak to recruits on this? Like, we were too afraid to say anything to you. It's, it's a funny thing. Sometimes the, the way to really deal with it is instead of, as you say, not talking about it, but when you go into it yourself, when you're the person it's happened to, and you talk about that from this place of life experience, then that dramatically changes the atmosphere. I agree, and I've just decided, well, this is the journey I've been on. I'm going to own that journey and, and know as much as I can about it as possible. And so... I collected all the information, the, the briefs of evidence and the photographs, et cetera, to, uh, and that helped uh, put all the pieces of the jigsaw to puzzle together for me, which was psychologists and psychiatrists both supported, but now it enables me to, uh, to explain in detail to people uh, what happened o on the night and what happened to the other people involved and uh, give people hope, and that's the... That's uh, if you have hope, and you've got nothing. Yes. One thing I'm writing here too is it's quite it, overcoming your greatest fear and becoming a firearms instructor. Tell us about that. I was actually planning. I was planning a career outside the police because of. The, the first reconstruction failed and I just fell in a heap because I knew what I was going to go through again. And some of my uh, uh, treatment had been less than perfect, shall we say, by peers and uh, managers. And and basically, it, looking back on it, they were ignorant. They were uh, not malicious, but just could not understand the impact that this had on me and my family and some of my reactions and and I'll, I'll tell you one of the stories second anniversary of the shooting i was working in a plainclothes unit investigating internet uh, pedophilia because at this stage i found it very difficult to um deal with uh, confrontation and so I was initially, you know, large, most of my work was behind the computer and then I built up to uh, go and do mm. raids on pedophile houses and seize their computers and we'd have them examined and have them charged with child exploitation material. On the second anniversary of the shooting, everybody who was involved, we got together at the Breakfast Creek Hotel, very famous place here in Brisbane, you know, when we had a steak and I might have had one beer and we were just beginning you know, we hadn't really, actually, we hadn't really begun to open up and talk openly and honestly amongst ourselves who were involved about the effect of the shooting. So this night I've gone home and my brain was wired. It was like there was a small electric motor whizzing around and I'm lying in bed, I'm staring at the ceiling and I could not sleep. And I didn't want to be there 
with all these thoughts going um, you know, through, through my head. So I decide I know how to deal with this. But not alcohol, I've got proper medication. So I took a heavy dose of sleeping tablets, did the trick, it got me to sleep, but they were uh, a very strong sleeping tablet that unfortunately leaves you quite drowsy in, in the morning. So I wasn't fit to drive, let alone go to work. So I phoned in sick, and then the next day, my supervisor, he's uh, walking down the corridor and he comes up to me and, hey, Greeny, got a moment? Step over, mate. There's no better reason to get on the piss for what you guys went through. But the other day when you had your celebration, the following day, you should not have gone sick, but you should change a shift from a afternoon, uh, from a day shift to an afternoon shift. And that. So he's just made the assumption that I was uh, hungover and uh, unable to come to work. And I never had the courage to turn around to try to explain, and I don't know if it would have, would have sunk in. All it did was erect a wall between me and my manager, and I thought there's no way that I can reach this person. So that led to uh, this wall between myself and, and many of my uh, uh, supervisors. Then I got the news that my reconstructions failed. I was going to have to go back, back on surgery. Peers criticised my motivation. I was just in a downward spiral. I thought, right, it's no career for me. What am I going to do? Sitting on my backside, feeling sorry for myself, it's never got me anywhere. Learned that lesson. I need to get some new skills. So I said, I'm going to find myself a desk job, sit in the corner and hide, do my day job, which is more conducive to study, and I'm going to roll in a part-time degree and get some new skills and take that um, once I graduate to the outside world and uh, leave the police behind me and hopefully all my problems. Got a, a position in training at the academy as a sergeant and from 2003 to 2008, I worked full-time uh, in the training role at the academy and studied part-time a master's degree. And in 2008, after a tremendous slog, you know, I had some amazing new skills, ready to take to the outside world because I had a master's degree in finance, but it was the height of the global financial crisis. And I was just deflated. I could not believe my luck. I said, I've just devoted five years of my life and now we've had the biggest financial crisis of, of my lifetime. And that scarpered the idea of a, a career in finance. And uh, I had an amazing new boss at this particular time. And I talk a lot about leadership and about him and how he broke down walls with me. And the short of it is he encouraged me uh, to, well, he said, he, 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 he said to me um, one day when, when we were having a, a chat, and I, and I mentioned how the, the GFC had torn up my future plans. He said, Greeny, I don't know if you realise this, but you'd make a great senior sergeant and you're ready for promotion. So he's planted the seed of that, you know, well, I could have a, a, a career in the police and continue on. But I knew that I struggled with uh, confrontation uh, and especially violent confrontation, anything to do with firearms. I hated firearms training. I, I feared it. And I had to do it once a year. I just wanted to get there, get it over and done with it and gone. And, and I thought, well, you know, I, can't, I can't really go on in, the, in it a career in the police, uh, having this overwhelming fear. And I remember reading a biography of Erwin Rommel many years earlier, and one of his 
uh, precepts was, uh, if you have a fear, uh, face it and defy it at the earliest opportunity. And that resonated with me and I thought, all right, how can I face this fear? Well, I can become a firearms instructor. So my boss, Inspector Dave Stevenson, supported me, uh, my application for it. It was accepted and it was a two-week course and it was grueling going on the bus uh to the firing range i you know was holding my fists you could see the whites of my knuckles and i was wondering uh what other um police officers who were becoming instructors were thinking and Fortunately, I had uh, excellent instructors. They knew what I'd been through, and I thought, um, you know, good on you for, for trying this. And so they worked really hard with me. So when I had over overreactions, they didn't come down me like a ton of bricks and, and abuse me, but they took me aside and we'd talk through it and we'd come back and then we'd go through the scenario again. So running, visualisation, and, uh, and talking were the keys that getting me through that and and just became normal for me. I actually, I really enjoy firearms uh, uh, training. That's amazing. That's that's quite the transition. It, it's not something I would have expected to hear from you or anybody else having gone through something uh, as uh, horrific as you did. Yep. Yes, I, but it, again, inspired by somebody else's story and that was uh, that little little piece I took away from Erwin Rommel. And, mm. and yeah. And the, and the stories, if they're told in a certain way, they can connect with us and they can help us with our with our healing process. And it only has to be just one little thing that connects and, and we resonate with. It's um, I'll, I'll just touch very quickly, Daryl. You've mentioned um, uh, you know your ten year battle um, for the criminal compensation. It's something I hear so often, and there's especially in uh, you know, the first responders, the, the ambulance, police, fire brigade, that some things happen and it takes so long. I mean, surely it was just a clear, it seemed like just a clear, you, you were shot on duty. It's, you know, why, why do these things have to go through compensation battles like that and actually draw out, like you said, you know, it, it, you had to get past that to be able to really work on the PTSD because it was bringing things up. Um, I mean, I don't want to delve into that too much, but I hear it all the time. Um, unfortunately, what it comes down to is legislation is passed, which is well-intentioned, but then it goes to a, uh, a government agency and they have limited funds. And so, unfortunately, from my experience, they try to conserve those uh, funds uh, by being... Um, yeah, sometimes to the letter of the law, and that was what my case was. They just went to the letter of the law and said, was uh, at that particular time, the criminal compensation, you were entitled to it if the offender was found guilty, if the uh, offender was found insane, if the offender went missing. But there was another scenario that wasn't mentioned, and that was, oh, if the offender uh, committed suicide, which occurred in my case. And because of he committed suicide, my lawyers would write to the uh, Department of Justice and say, look, we understand Daryl's scenario does not exactly fit the legislation. We think the legislation uh, is, is um, 
not perfect and in the spirit of the law that Dow should be awarded criminal compensation. So this started in 2006 after my work cover case was closed and then there was you know some uh, bureaucrat who was just looking at on the on, on the service and saying oh no sorry um, he's not entitled to it you know and would write back and I can clearly prove that I was a uh, a victim of a crime because I have audio of the shooting taking place <laughs> the good the good news is the legislation has been changed now that's a good thing. For for what it's worth, I I met somebody recently, not not in Australia, but from Canada, who wound up very sick. He had cancer. He had to get uh, part of his arm amputated, and he fought with the the agency for many many years to get compensation. And one of the things, it's like it's not growing back. And they and and it was so obvious, but they wouldn't give him compensation, and he wouldn't give up fighting. He fought them for six years until he finally got it. And this, these stories, and his his story, yes, and I've heard other stories like that as well, fighting these agencies for compensation. You would think they would just give it to somebody when it's obvious that they qualify, but no, there are all these hoops that people have to go through, and it's not a good thing. Definitely a bad thing for so many people. You're an example, he's an example, only knows how many others there are out there yeah i just wish there there was a little bit more uh, empathy and maybe you know compassion and even some some training uh for these people because i have a um uh, another horrific story and i was with my uh father who's beside me uh, right now I was released from hospital and one week after the shooting, I've gone with my father, a union representative, and to meet somebody from the state government agency that um, is responsible for your medical care when you are injured on duty. And I'm literally just stunned and dazed you know, after the shooting. Do you mean to say somebody's put a rifle you know, less than a metre to my head, shot me in the face and I'm alive to tell the tale. So I'm in just a bit of a zombie. And I don't recall anything from this hour meeting and I'd, I'd never um, you know, uh, been on workers' compensation before. But at the end of this meeting, this lady, who'd be in her mid-30s, turned around and said, well, I expect you'll be back to work next week. You must be joking. I, with I the severe, not. with the severe injuries you had, that's because, unbelievable. Because the the bullet to the arm, they were able to slice in and pull that out, and so my arm was, uh, uh, you know, pretty much fully functional. Um, you know, at least from you know the sense that I could operate in an office environment. Then to look at my face, all you could see was three missing teeth. You couldn't see the missing maxilla bone and all the damage behind it. And so this person's uh, job was, you know, to, to get me back to work as quick as possible. And, and I just felt they just wanted to get me off their books and looked at me and said, well, yeah, you know, and maybe you know, you can't go out and patrol car and and arrest people, but you know you could you know, sit behind and uh, a desk and. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and 
and, and, and work in that capacity. They never had the understanding of what was ahead of me, let alone a psychological impact. And to me, for that lady, if I could sit down and talk to her again, I'd like to think, now you just imagine that's your son, a 27-year-old police officer, and has had the gun put to his head and been shot. How would you like them to be treated by your agency to help get them back to work? Well, if if these agencies are now getting some, you know, if, if things through these stories and through these experiences are, are, are helping things and legislation change and training people in that in those spaces to uh, do things differently, it's a it's one step forward. I, I agree, and and the funny thing is, there's a um, a psychiatrist, Doctor uh, Sandy McFarlane, and uh, he says that. Regarding PTSD, what seems to have occurred over history is we'd have the First World War. They'd get shocked by it, but then the uh, medical fraternity and governments get to understand it and get some treatments involved. But then the war ends, and then you have the Second World War. Oh, what, what's this PTSD? And, and, and so we seem to be having to relearn these lessons, and that was the same for Vietnam when these people were coming home with all these uh, injuries. I'm hoping now that... Uh, that PTSD does not drop off the, uh, the the spotlight because it's not just people in the military and, and first responders. You can be involved in a car accident. You can be you know, a victim of a crime. There's so many other people affected by PTSD and other people, I'm sure, are going to get the comments you know, that I've had, you know, uh, living in, in, in the past. Or why don't you just get over it? And yeah it that that doesn't that doesn't work i'm i'm living proof of that yeah. uh different background than you for sure when somebody says that i mean back in the day when somebody said it i wanted to slug somebody it's like you must be joking if i could have gotten over this i would have gone over it years ago like you just can't turn it off like flipping a switch um Different things need to happen. Different therapies work for different people. I found Hamish, and it's a direct result of that that we're here. Um, it, it's not as easy as flipping a switch. I really wish it was. Um, Daryl, just can I? I just wanted just one question. Question before Nathan uh, wraps it up. For people who have been through a traumatic experience, and um, you know, this is a very different. You know, it may not may not be sort of abuse and that sort of trauma, but the you know could be the car accident, could be you know, these sorts of things that you've been through. What would be your your one piece of advice for someone at, that is at that point of I'm going crazy with this, I just don't know what to do, and they're they're in that space of it, it's just really gripping them like a vice. I'd probably give them three pieces of advice, and the the first one would be professional help find somebody who they're comfortable with and speak with them that's a, the, the the first very helpful step the second thing that i would recommend see if you can try and find somebody and these professionals may be able to assist you who's been through something similar and come out the other side and they can turn around and tell you and I spoke to a police officer who was involved in a shooting where he actually uh, unfortunately had to uh, stop a man who was armed with a knife and took his life. 
and he had a very similar reaction to me and that was my libido went off the wall and when i expressed that to, to, to him and he said the same thing happened to me mate but i worked through it you know, my, my wife and i worked through it so that was extremely powerful to say oh okay that's a normal reaction and in time this will help the last thing that i would recommend and i've got a quote for it because this dogged me for years because there were so many uh negative uh words and comments and slurs and even newspaper articles one of the people who called us to the address one week after the shooting they were in the local uh, newspaper the courier mail i had the article that said they didn't take me seriously so we did take you seriously we we're investigating it and that was that is a process and so with all those comments they i would ruminate over them but i got to the point and I'll sum it up with this. Don't care what other people think. The people you care about, care about what they think. And those were my best supporters, my mum, my dad, my friends. And some of my friends will say, hey, Grinny, I don't think you're thinking quite right there. So they're not yeah. always telling what I want to hear, but um, I respect them. And and that was a huge help. That was, that was an epiphany. So, so for for people who would like to get in touch with you, you know, to learn more about what you're doing or how you can work with them, how would they do that? First point of call is my uh, website, twiceshot.com. And uh, shortly there's going to be a uh, book on there. I've been uh, featured in a book on uh, resilience, Building a Powerful Mindset by Dean Publishing. Mine is one of uh, 14 uh, incredible stories. So I'm privileged to be part of that. And for the viewers, if they would uh, like uh, to, um, there's hard copy and there's e-copy, but if they uh, just put in the code uh, HACKERS25, uh, that will be a, a a uh, 25% uh, discount for them. People can reach me uh, um, via email, daryl at twiceshot.com. Uh, That's the uh, the other way. And uh, uh, I really enjoyed uh, chatting, gentlemen. I really appreciate what we're doing for uh, trauma and normalising it and getting the message out there and literally saving lives because too many lives are ended through suicide. Agreed. Yes. Yes. And this is what just one little thing you said there, finding somebody, somebody who has been through a similar story. So many people don't know how to find that person. And that's what we're trying to get. If, if you can connect with a similar story that someone's been through, you've been that person, that story. And that's what these interviews are about. So thank you very much, Daryl. It's been an absolute pleasure, Nathan and Hamish. You're most welcome. So for those of you who have been listening to us, my name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston. We have been speaking with Daryl Green uh, about his experiences. And we are the Thought Hackers. We will see you again next time. You've been listening to the Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts. <laughs>